from this point, except for the next chapter, through the rest of the book of Genesis, we will focus on someone that isn't even in the line of Christ. And that's a bit strange, perhaps. We know back in Genesis 3.15 that God had promised that there would be a man that would come from this woman, Eve, that will redeem all of Israel, that will redeem all of mankind. And so we look to see who he is. Fast forward to Noah. We know that he must come from that specific line of all the people. Beyond that, Noah has three children. has to be the one Shem, because Shem is the one who will then progenate Abraham. So we've gone from all mankind to Noah, from Noah's three sons to Shem, Shem's line all the way down now to this guy Abraham who has a couple kids, one out of wedlock, if you'll pardon me for saying, and God picks the one in, and that, of course, is Ishak or Laughter, Isaac. Isaac will have a couple sons, of which we've just looked at the other one you saw in the last chapter. That's not the one. Now we see developed Jacob. Jacob would be the one, but Jacob gets more complicated because we have 12 children we have to choose from. Which one is the Messiah going to come from? By the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 49, what we'll find is that he'll have to come from the tribe of Judah. Judah will, in essence, between here and there, other than the next chapter, which isn't the best chapter for Judah, he will relatively be little seen. What we'll see is this guy, Joseph. And strange, what will happen is we'll ultimately, from Judah, who will have children as well, we'll chase it all the way down to a king named David. And from David, who will have many sons, we'll find that it will not be Solomon, although that would be our likely candidate. It'll actually be another son, Nathan. And what we'll find in all of that is that God will be chasing the line. But in between that lineage, we're looking to find this man. God throws something else into the mix that is more than just a lineage physically, that there's something examples or I should say physically, there's something in an example spiritually that with different characters that aren't of the lineage of the Messiah, that God will highlight because there's something in that person and their behavior and their mannerisms and their events that are going to help prepare us for this Messiah to come. As a matter of fact, the most high-lit characters between here and David will all, in essence, be outside of the lineage of Christ. We have Joseph for here to the rest of the book. Most candidated character, most pressed character in all of Genesis. Then from Exodus to the end of the, of the Torah will be Moses, who is from the tribe of Levi, not from the tribe of Judah. And then after him will be a guy named Joshua, which, by the way, will be from the tribe of Ephraim, which, by the way, interestingly enough, is the tribe of Joseph. And I look at that and I realize, well, wait a minute, we have Joseph, the, or should I say Joe, the forgiver, I have Mo, the deliverer, and then I have Josh, the conqueror, and all of these individuals will be people outside of the lineage. And you go, well, then God, why did you even take the camera and focus on this guy when the babies are being born over here to the Messiah? God goes, because there's so much more than this being just about a baby. This baby has to be those three things. It has to be the forgiver that Joseph will be. And if Joseph didn't forgive, by the way, Israel would never have existed. Because without Joseph's forgiveness, without Joseph's forgiveness, Israel would have starved to death. It's that simple. Without Moses, without Mo, they would have actually retained slavery. They would never have been delivered. They would have been assimilated into Egyptian culture. Without Josh, they would have never entered the promised land, but would have all died in the wilderness. Now listen, a forgiver a deliverer, a conqueror. And if this Jesus isn't those three things to you, if any one of those is missing, your walk is going to be weak at best. Has he forgiven you? Without the cross of forgiveness, there is no reason to us to approach the throne of grace. It is Christ's forgiveness that has washed us free from our sins. But it was more than that. And that becomes the problem. For some of us, we've gone, all right, well, Jesus has forgiven us. I'm thankful. I'm just waiting to go to heaven now. I'm just going to sit here at the platform waiting for the glory train. God's like, look it, I want to deliver you out of the land of bondage now. You shouldn't live the way you did before. 
And that becomes a problem anytime you start setting the rules for God. All right, I'll accept Jesus as long as he lets me be blah, 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 because I was born this way or I'm just this person or I'm just going to be whatever. And in the end of it all, what you're saying is, look, it, I'm okay with Jesus being Joe. I'm just not okay with Jesus being Mo. And you're like, you know, all right, Lord, no Mo. And the Lord says, uh-uh, yes, Mo. You need deliverance. And in that deliverance, we come to that place where we realize we're not the person we used to be. But so the problem is deliverance is never removal. Hear that again. Deliverance is never removal. If I were to say, Juan, I need you to deliver this, it would be wise for Juan to say, where? But when someone says, I just want to thank the Lord because I've been delivered. What you've been delivered from? I've been delivered from all kinds. I've been delivered from drinking. I mean, I drank rubbing alcohol on my spare days, and I drank, you know, nail polish remover for fun. And you're like, okay, great. So you've been delivered from that. Where have you been delivered to? Well, I don't know. Well, now I'm addicted to huff and glue, but I don't drink anymore. The Bible says we've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the son he loves. Do you get it? God's not interested in removal. God wants to take you from it but bring you to him. The reason he delivered you from that was so he could deliver you to him. That's the whole idea. I mean, those guys that were sweet on my wife before, you know, when my wife and I were first starting to hang out, my goal was not just to remove her from those men so she could find some other man later on. The goal was to pull her from anyone else because I was her man and still am. You get it, right? But how sad we could be like that. We could be anything but that with the Lord. Focuses on these characters because what he wants us to get is something in their life is going to help us understand that this Messiah is more than just someone who happens to fulfill the DNA test. He's a deliverer. He's a forgiver. He's a deliverer. And he's a conqueror. Now, with that in mind, we're going to take a look at Joseph. In Joseph's life, by the way, one of the interesting things, though we know him to be human, we have no recorded sin that Joseph ever did. Oh, we sure he did somewhere down the line, but we don't have any recorded sin. We could say there were things that were unwise, like telling your big brothers that they're all going to bow to you because you had a dream. Okay, that might not be so wise, but we can clearly say that there was no sin we can find in all of this. Might I just also say, and I'm just going to jump right, as you probably know, I'm not good at dancing in a a china shop. I'm just going to run and knock everything over, and then I don't have to worry about it, right? Well, here it is. If you want to try to tell me that the reason why you're so mucked up is because the where you came from, I don't doubt for a moment that could play into it. You're mucked up because you're human. You were born defective. Be warmed and filled. But we all are. Listen, Joseph gives, takes away all of our Oprah excuses. Could you be born into a more dysfunctional family than this? Your oldest brother just slept with one of your moms. One of your moms. That tells you something already, doesn't it? (laughs) Brothers two and three in the list just completely annihilated all the men in the city you came from. Kind of murderers. Your sister was raped. You go, tell us this story. Joseph, he's 17 years old here. 17 years old. And you're his friend in school. And he shows up first day of class. Hey, who are you? Well, let me tell you. Well, it kind of started kind of like this. My dad had to flee from my uncle Laban. He fled from him because he was kind of stealing from my dad. So my dad fled from that. And when he did, mom, mom took the gods. Yeah. And so as he fled, they made this deal that uncle Laban couldn't go any farther. And he was going to kill him. But then he said, look it, I was going to kill you. But your God said, don't kill him. So he didn't kill him. So then, and just as we got past that, now we had to worry about uncle Harry because he was the one waiting us on the other side who was trying to kill us as well. And so, I mean, these kids grew up with the idea that every uncle wants to kill them. Christmas must not be a happy time. (laughs) Family's coming over. No, no, please, please. Have it alone. Just us. Small goose. Uncle Harry, and he was, I don't know if he's going to kill us or not, but he showed up and gave, gave him a hug, and he said, well, why don't you just go with us? And off he left, and Dad said, no, we're going to go up here so we can kill everyone and check them. And, I mean, I mean, what kind of family is that? 
He's going to be betrayed by all of his brothers. He's, by the way, a product of a miraculous birth because unless God intervened, he wouldn't have been born. That's what we read. God had to open up the womb of his mom. So one of the things that compares to Jesus is that he couldn't have been born had God not intervened. But just the same, by a miraculous birth, so it is he's born. And now all of a sudden he's experiencing all of this. His brothers are going to sell him into this. He's going to run off to Egypt. And in all of that, this hot and skanky thing is going to start making moves on him. And at the moment, which one of you guys at 17 doesn't go, you know, that is enough of being good. Look at my, I mean, look at my oldest brother. He was with one of my moms. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, where, where, but he gives us no excuse. I mean, this is a, this is a 17-year-old kid who is not going to bow down to the pure. Now, understand, it isn't like he's got a bunch of friends that he actually texts in his spare time. His encouragement group, his peer group, is his brothers. What does that tell you? And that's Joseph. So what's your excuse? How many nationalities are known for their lateness? Not that that's the biggest sin in the world, right? African time? Asian time? Hawaiian time? Italian time? Spanish time? Sorry, we were taking a siesta, you know? (laughs) And, And the reason I say that is it's amazing how many people blame their nationality for their violence. We're Scottish. We fight. We're Irish. We drink. And then we fight. You know, we're Italian. We run hot. We fight. We're Greek. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not everybody fights, honey. She doesn't like that. And for good reason. Joseph doesn't give us that. What could he say? I mean, think about what he could say if, if what Jewish meant was his family. We're Jewish. We kill cities. We're, you know, we're Jewish. We take all the girls. Like, okay, well, how's that work? And you realize, if that's what we're looking for, and listen, listen, if sin is looking for an excuse, it will find one. If what you're looking for is a reason to be rotten, all you need is the Internet. There's going to be some kook out there that's written a report on how it's okay to do that and still be okay. You know, and then it's like holy homicidals for Christ. You know, you'll find your, whatever it is, you can find it somewhere, and I'm not encouraging you to look. Jacob dwelt in the land that he was a stranger in because his dad was a stranger there. In Genesis 17, verse 8, Genesis 28, verse 4, and then Genesis 36, verse 7, we'll see different places where it's clear that these guys were strangers. There was one of the fundamental aspects is they could not make claim to the place that God promised them. It wasn't now. In verse 2, we read that Joseph was 17 years old, and he was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bircha and the sons of Zilpah, the fa- his father's wives. Now, that's four brothers that we're aware of, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Those were the ones, if you remember, when they've got these two sisters, and one sister's putting out a lot of puppies, and the other sister has no children. That happens to be this boy's mom, by the way. She just says, well, take my maidservant, and she has a couple babies. And then the other sister goes, oh, well, then take my maidservant. And it's like a baby race. Who can have the most babies? They're arguing over aphrodisiacs. They're arguing over, oh, this will really do it. Give me some aphrodisiac. Come on. You know, it's like, give me, give me the mandrakes. You can have the man. You know, and, it's like, and all of that, it's the crazy part about it is it's because it's like, look, if I could have, the, the saddest part is this girl, Leah, who would be, by the way, Joseph's aunt. She just wants to have a lot of babies, to be honest, because it looks like cause she just wants to be loved. And it's like her older sister who seems like, or I'm sorry, the younger sister who seems like she's always gotten the upper hand doesn't want to be bettered by her sister at anything. Now he's there with four of his half-brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And it says in verse 2, Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. That's, by the way, another thing we'll find that will compare to Jesus, of course. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God says this in verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should they not be feeding the the flocks instead? By verse 10 of chapter 34, it says, I will deliver my flock from their mouths 
that they would no longer be food for them. Now notice, God didn't say, I'm going to send someone. God says, I'm going to come and shepherd my people now. God looked at his flock and he said, those people who are supposed to be shepherds are just feeding the, well, they're raising the flock for their own benefits. It's only for them. And God says, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of watching my precious children abused by men who are so full of themselves that all they want to do is use the flock for their own benefit. So God says, I'm coming in. And it is, if you recognize that promise, you can understand why people got so bent out of shape when Jesus said in John 10, not I am a, but I am the good shepherd. The only good shepherd was God. That's what God told us. And I remember reading Ezekiel 34 and getting blessed because he talked about how the weak have not been strengthened, the lost and scattered haven't been sought after. You realize all of the things that should happen with a pastor were not being happening, were not happening. But instead, of course, what you saw was they were all being fatted for the feast for the benefit of the leader. God says, I'm done with that. God has no problem telling you what's wrong with you, but he doesn't do it for the purpose of making you feel bad. He does it because he wants to make you better. You don't go to a doctor normally for him to tell you what's good with you. You're like, wow, I've had this horrible problem. I've got this lump on my side. It's about the size of a cantaloupe. And he looks and goes, but you have a lovely smile. And he sends you out. And you're like, I didn't come here to feel good about it. I came here to feel better. And understand, it tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, God is not telling you that you need to just jump into someone's business and just start getting nasty on them. We speak the truth in love with gentleness and with respect. But if we're going to be friends, we tell the truth. And with that, Joseph does. He tells his dad, Dad, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, they are not being the shepherds they should be. Verse 3, it says, Israel loved Joseph. Now notice it's Israel here, not Jacob. Love, by the way, did you notice, by the way, verse 2, like this is the history of Jacob. And God says, in other words, it's really interesting. I would have put that at the end of the last chapter. It just seemed like a strange place. Because the idea was, it's like, okay, now that's the end of Jacob. Let's start moving on with Israel. He's like, you get what I'm saying? And he goes, but it's interesting because Israel's still got some issues. And one is he really loves this Joseph boy, which is nothing wrong with that. The problem is he favors him over others. Why? Because he's the oldest of the wife who's now dead the one he loved, the one he really favored. And what you find is, is that although he's number 11 of 12 sons, dad is really trying to make him the firstborn. But his firstborn, remember, slept with one of his, one of, one of his wives. So he's kind of, you know, he's kind of removed. The next two in line, by the way, were the ones who killed all the Shechem, all the men of Shechem. So they're kind of removed from it. And you can see dad going, okay, three down. You know, that was at eight to go, seven to go. If I could just keep disqualifying the rest of my kids, well, I'm going to get to Joseph sooner or later. The one he keeps missing, by the way, is Judah. Did you miss that? Because he's number four. And Judah will be the one, of course, from whom the Messiah will come. But after, Ju- after Judah will come these boys, and now they're all kind of yanked out because of being bad, being bad shepherds. Again, the one we keep going, well, where's Judah in all of this? Well, we don't find that that is a cause for Judah. Verse 3, it says, though, that Israel loved him more because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a tunic of many colors. And, of course, that's where all of the musical comes from. Uh, However, it's important to recognize it's not the only place in Scripture we're going to see this. But interesting, it tends to be something more feminine than masculine. Let me give you a couple places, for instance. 2 Samuel 13, I think it's verse 18. uh, David, when he has all of his daughters that are virgins, get this beautiful robe of many colors. It's a way of, in essence, of highlighting somebody that you're proud of. That's the idea of it. It's, I mean, we, we don't really have that today. Can you, I mean, we do, and there are certain cultures, when a girl turns 15, they have something like a quinceañera, is that what it's called? Right? Uh, I think there's something even similar in some other cultures, but the idea is, is that if a girl's kept herself pure, it's sad to say, congratulations, you've kept yourself pure and you're 15, but just the same. In this culture, that is an accomplishment, but they want to sort of honor her for that. You know, I mean, the idea within the Hebrew culture by 13, when you have a boy that now is officially able to take, make choices for himself, and we call that a bar mitzvah, bar means son. They also have the same thing for a girl. It's called a bat mitzvah because a bat means daughter. The idea of honoring. But within this culture, we really don't have the idea that parents honor their son or their daughter for something that would be, you know, that would be of, of, in regards to integrity or character. 
But understand, a lot of cultures, even to this day in the Middle East, there is an honoring if you really are somebody that they're very proud of. Now, some of you know what it's like, I can tell you, I know what it's like to be on the other side of that spectrum. The person your dad would not want to take out in public and openly would tell you that because you would embarrass him just by your existence. So I know what that's like. But the idea of actually, and, and it's like when you, then you approach a God who's like, look at to be honest, when you get to heaven, when you stand before the shores of heaven, remember what Jesus says, he's not ashamed to call them his brothers. You realize God has that event planned when we stand before him. That's a really weird thought, isn't it? Because we don't have anything like that to relate to. But there is going to be a day when we're going to stand before God and God's going to call to attention all of heaven. Even if it's what appears, even it seems like even the demons who are going to be completely incompetent to do anything about it, is going to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased or well done, good and faithful servant. But it's not just like you're at the door and you're waiting for the next one. Well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> Made it in the next one. Well done, good and faithful servant. We kind of think it's like a drive through thing, right? This is, a, this is an event to be honored at. And I mean, what would it be like? To, to, you know, in heaven, it appears as if it doesn't have to be many colors. It appears as if it's one. Or if you took all the colors, if you really know art well, all the colors actually combine equal white, according to, to what, what I understand. And that's the color we will be wearing in heaven. And it's the same thing. It's something of purity and honor. And that's what the Father bestows upon this boy. It bestows him honor, and as a result of that, bestows him authority. Jesus says, by the way, in John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given him all, or into his hand, all things. By the way, in Psalm 45, verses 13 and 14, we also see the idea of daughters brought up and, 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 and honored because of their purity, as we see the same thing. Brought to the king in a robe of many colors. Joseph has it here. When the brothers saw that their father loved him more than their other brothers. Now notice it doesn't say they heard it, but they saw it. Well, how did they see it? Well, it's pretty evident. Joseph is clothed. And in the way that he is clothed, it's very evident that his clothing is different. Now don't miss this, beloved. There is a world out there that is determined to tell you that there is nothing different between a Christian and an unbeliever. There's nothing different in regards to God's definition of marriage versus the world's. There's nothing different between your religion and other religions. You're just another religion. You're not God's favorite religion. You're not God's only religion. You're just a part of another group, a part of a lot of other things. And if you were really different, what do you think? You're better than I am? That's where, you get, that's where they go next. Who are you, holier than thou? You know, are you self-righteous? People are going to play that game with you. And uh, let's be honest, that's just the way it's going to be. And what you, what you recognize is it's in your clothing that something's going to really make you stand out. According to Scripture, we are clothed in Christ. And to put on above all things love, which, by the way, in essence, if you'll pardon me for saying, in a loosest paraphrase, God says, completes your ensemble. It's love that will put all of that stuff together. When people start to look at that, they tend to see something very radically different between you and the rest of the world out there. Like, you know what? You're not as selfish. You're not as self-driven. But we're still going to play those same games with you and understand they're going to look and go, hey, wait a minute here. What, do you really think you're better than me? I'll say, look it, I am better off. And I don't have a problem telling you that. Well, what do you mean? You're going to hell and I'm not. How can I not be better off? How dare you say that? Well, look, at there's a gate. You can get out of that right now if you want to pray with me. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, then don't blame me. <laughs> the brothers saw this, and it says that they hated him. And they could not, not just would not, but notice in verse 4, they could not speak peaceably to him. How would you like to have ten older brothers, ten older brothers that couldn't even say a nice thing to you? Hey, guys, how's it going? Shut up, jerk. Oh, man, isn't it a beautiful day? I wish you were dead. I mean, ten brothers, ten of those. Man, that makes every meal a little difficult. That makes anything where the family gets together a little rough. You'd be thankful that we're all shepherds. At least we can head off in our different directions. Imagine that, how tough that would be. They could not speak peaceably to you. Well, they could speak peaceably to each other. And every time you run into ten brothers, every time you run into them, man, they would, they would rather, they'd, I'd rather spit in your face. Wow, thanks, guys. Jesus would tell us, by the way, stop. Stop it. Stop being surprised. 
if the world hates you. Stop it. Why is that supposed to amaze you? If the world hates me, and you were supposed to look like me, exactly how is the world going to like you if it hated me? How does that work for you? How does that fit in your map? And he doesn't say, look, it, make them hate you. Be a big jerk and see what they do. The bottom line is he goes, look, you won't have to worry about it. If you love me, they're going to hate you. Deal with it. You know what? If you were the best sports team out there, every team around you would hate you because you were the best sports team. And you could say, oh, I'm tired of them hating you. Let's just lose a lot, guys. Let's just lay down and be really bad. Then everyone, you know what? It, look, it, it's either they'll hate you or they'll make fun of you. There's no like you in between there. You know that, those of you who've watched any sport for any period of time. But we go to countries where everybody's wearing Levi jeans and saying, we hate America. I'm like, excuse me, where'd you get those jeans from? You know, I mean, they're wearing shirts that are like, God bless the USA. I mean, there's, and there's nothing, you know, I'm like, wow, impressive there, you know. You'll take my dollar. And I know what it was like in high school. You remember those days, those of you? When it was like the popular kid was hated by people who just, in honesty, wished they could be them. It's like, I hate you, but if I could be with you, I would like you. It's like, listen, you are to be envied. Now, I don't say that you should foster that. Should there be one person on the planet that people should wish they could have what you have more than you? You have eternal life. You have peace, and they're getting drunk to try to find it. You have love, and they're having sex to try to find it. You realize that? They're trying to own everything for importance, and you found it at the cross. You don't have to do anything to earn it. And they're trying it with everything they can. If they can achieve enough, get enough, get popular enough, get whatever enough, then maybe they'll be important. I found my importance at the cross. How about you? And there's nothing more annoying than a person who's okay with themselves when you're not. You're still trying to prove yourself, and they're like, whatever. I don't need to be impressed by that. Just be who you are. Shouldn't we be envied? But the enemy would go, hey, you know what? You need to be more like them. But why? You're the only living thing in the morgue. And he's saying, stop moving around so much. You're making waves. Yeah, I'm alive. There's something about that. Go act like everyone else. Why? They're dead. So let's move into it. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. Oh, I had a dream. And he had told it to his brothers, and they hated him all the more for that, as you might imagine. But by the way, note this. Joseph will be a person who is a heritage of dreams. If you remember, it was his dad who had a dream in Genesis 26 of the ladder where the angels ascended and descended. Imagine what it would be like. What it would be like. <coughs> English is my second language. I just don't have a first. Um, <coughs> imagine what it would be like to sit down and have dad tell you that story. You know, there I was, fleeing from one, running, you know, fleeing from your brother, Uncle Harry, my brother, Uncle Harry, who wanted to kill me. And there I was, and the Lord met me in a dream. It's interesting. Dreams will play key into him. Twice he'll have these dreams here. They will be fulfilled soon. And then after all of that, it'll be dreams, by the way, that'll get Joseph actually noted by those who were in prison. And it'll be a dream by Pharaoh, ultimately, that will deliver him out of that prison and make him second in command. So God's going to use dreams all over this guy's life. And by the way, don't, don't like devalue how God wants to speak to you. Now, for some, that can be a dream. I can tell you in my own life, had it not been, it was, I should say it this way, the Lord used a dream to reunite me with my brother who I hadn't seen in over 20 years. So I can tell you that. But I can also tell you that sometimes at night, when I, and I like spicy things, and I smack down something super spicy, I won't tell you that I think the Lord's trying to speak to me with some of the dreams I've had on those nights. But there is something about saying to the Lord, Lord, was that you? And he can make clear, listen, it's God's responsibility to speak to you in your language. Because of the two of us, me and God, I'm the dumber one. I always will be. And God always has to be. He's responsible to communicate at my level. And he'll, and he'll happily take that responsibility. He speaks fluently, and, and he speaks fluently too. 
What's interesting is Joseph has this dream, and what seems is that the brothers get it pretty well. He says, look at I've dreamt. He tells the boys, hey, guys. Now, remember, they couldn't speak peaceably to him. That's a start. Now, I wonder in all of this if, if you were tired of getting ribbed on by your ten brothers and you had a dream like this, you would, would you tell them? You just actually might. I mean, they're already going to throw your head in the toilet and, th- and run you down a trash can anyways. What's the difference? So, I mean, it's like, look, it's going to be one of those days. Which one of you is going to knock me down and drip spit on me anyways and give me the noogie or whatever? I mean, in all of that, okay, look it, I had a dream. And it was the dream. The dream in which I dreamt, there were, we were binding sheaves. Now, when you bind, does anyone know what binding sheaves is? If you don't, you're like, wow, I can really relate. What is it? All right. Sheaves are wheat. They grow up, and you take that sickle, and you wrap your arm like this, and you go like this, try not to cut your leg. And then when you do that, you take it and you wrap it up, and that thing's called a sheave. Now, I find that interesting, because the dream wasn't we were walking around somewhere at a mall, and your stores bowed down to my store. It wasn't, hey, we were all making hamburgers, and all your hamburgers bowed down to my hamburger. It was, it was grain. And why is that important? Because God is actually going to use grain as the tool to put Joseph where he wants it. It will take a famine. But in all of that, it will take that. It will be grain that God will use. And that's the beginning of this dream. I look, and here we all are. It's clearly harvest time, and we all set up our sheep. We go like this, or like this, and I tie that whole thing up. And notice what it says. It says that, and it says, um, Then behold, my sheep arose and, and, and also stood upright, and indeed all your sheep stood around and bowed down to my sheep. Now his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? You shall not indeed have dominion over us. So they hated him even more, as if that were possible, for his dreams and for his words. So they hated him because he knew who he was, and they hated him because he told them. Which, by the way, will be very, of course, similar to what Jesus had done. Then he dreamt another dream. And he told it to his brothers and he said, Look, I dreamt another dream. This time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down. I mean, you'd think this guy's got such a delusional grandeur. And he told to his to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, Well, what is this dream that you have dreamt? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? Now the strange thing about this is his mom's dead. So I'm not too sure what mom he's speaking of here, unless this happened some other time earlier. But notice it says his brothers envied him. His father kept the matter in mind. For what it's worth, in Matthew 27, 18, and Mark as well, 15, 10, the chief priests knew that the reason Jesus had been handed over is because of envy. And that's what we see here as well. These guys are just jealous. So his brothers went to feed their father's flocks in Shechem. Stop, verse 12. What? Of all the places to feed the flock, you feed the flock in the place where you just murdered all of the guys? That's a little strange. Don't you find that strange? But just the same. By the way, these are different brothers. At least the ones we find here are not the sons of Birchan Zilpah. These are the sons of Leah, at least what we have here. Now, this is the place where your sister was raped. This is the land of dead men. It says in verse 13, Israel said to Joseph, Aren't your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I'm going to send them to you. I don't know which one of you would think, oh, that's neat, Dad, thanks. That's what I need to be in an open field with guys who can't say a nice word to me. But notice he says, here I am. Which, by the way, throughout Scripture is a semblance of simple, open surrender. Willingness to do the will. This is what is, it's what Grandpa Abraham, great-grandpa Abraham said in 22.1. Isaac said, Dad, our grandpa said in 22.7. Moses will say it in Exodus 3. Jeremiah says, As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. Jeremiah 26.14. We get the sort of spirit of it. Verse 14 here it says. Then he said, Please, go and see if it's well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. I, I believe the reason why the father sent him because he gave an honest report about the other brothers. He's like, I need to know what these guys are up to. You'll tell me the truth. Now, from where he's at, Hebron to Shechem, by the way, is 60 miles. He's going to be heading north. He sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now, he found a certain, now, a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in a field, which tells me that he wasn't finding him. And the man asked him, saying, well, what are you seeking? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Number 17. Please tell me where they're feeding their flocks. 
And the man said, well, they've departed from here, and I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And for what it's worth, Dothan means two wells. It's 12 miles north of Samaria and another 15 miles from where he's at. Quite a distance away. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even uh, before he came near them, they saw him far enough. Now, how are they going to recognize him? Oh, yeah, he's the one with the rainbow coat. Remember that? It would be easy to identify from everybody else coming near him. They conspired against him to kill him. Which, by the way, John eleven fifty three, perfect parallel. It says, come, before us, come, before, come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we'll say, well, a wild beast has devoured him. We could blame it on someone else. If there's a way we can actually kill him, but actually make it so that it isn't like we're the ones who killed him, that would be awesome. Doesn't that sound a bit like Jesus' trials to you? Nonetheless, we'll see what will become of his dreams. Reuben heard it. Remember, that's the one who slept with one of dad's wives. And he delivered him out of their hands. He, he, he said, delivered him out of his hands. He said, look, let's not kill him. Shed no blood. I'll throw him in the pit if you want. Cast him into the pit that's in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Then he might deliver him out of his hands later and bring him back to his father. So Reuben's trying to save him. And I do find this interesting. Did you notice? There's somebody here who doesn't want to kill the boy. He doesn't mind him being, well, he, he'll allow him to be punished, but he won't, doesn't want him killed. I can't help but think of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and others that were part of the ruling party that didn't want Jesus killed, but were powerless to stop the situation as a whole. He said, look, we can't kill him. He's, your, he's our brother. We can't kill him. Go ahead and throw him in the pit. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped him, of course, which is also consistent. Uh, By the way, you probably realize it's modesty. A person hung naked on a cross. We just don't like to show that because who wants to put that in their church? Who wants to put that around their neck? But a criminal hung naked because you wanted to see exactly how badly he was beaten. Remember, the whole idea of it is the the more that the Romans could torture their people, torture any person, it was preventative. You'd say, wow, what did he do? Whatever it was, don't do that. Well, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, a tunic of many colors that was on him, that robe that gave him authority. By the way, it's interesting. For what it's worth, you're probably aware of the fact that Jesus' robe was one of actually a leader. How do we know that? Because it hadn't a seam. When you read the story accounts, the reason they gambled for his clothing is because that piece was, that was good property right there. Jesus had a seamless gown. And that was only something that was worn by a ruler. Just the same, just as Joseph here with his many colors. So they took them and cast them into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. For what it's worth, Zechariah 9 and 1, 1 will help you with that. And then the most amazing thing to me in verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. So these guys have thrown their brother, left him to die, handed him over, and they sat down to eat a meal. For what it's worth, in the Gospel of John, we read, and probably you're familiar with this, that Jesus had already been, by the way, in the, the, the palace of the high priest. Does that make you feel a little nervous or weird? That does for me. By the way, there should never be like the palace or the mansion of the pastor. The archbishop's massive estate. We should be living like people in houses. Just the same. At Jesus... Um, at Jesus' original trial, they throw him in the inner prison. They throw him in the prison. And in the prison, I've sat in a place where many do believe it's Caiaphas' house, where Jesus would have been. It's a hole in the floor you drop a guy down into. That's your prison. It's just a waterless pit. So basically, what it is is an empty cistern, uh, in this case, or a prison. And that's what this is. And, but it's interesting that when they do that, when they bring and hand Jesus, and they want to hand Jesus over to Pilate, remember it says they would not enter into Pilate's house. Do you remember why? Because if they set foot in Pilate's house, they would have been defiled and they wouldn't have been able to go and eat their meal. So they hand Jesus over so that Jesus could be whipped and beaten and killed by the Romans by a wild beast so that they can go and eat their meal. And it says here, they throw Joseph into the pit and then they sit down and eat a meal. God didn't have to record that, but he did. And I think that's very important. So while these guys are kind of noshing, it says they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites. Remember, Ishmael is one of the sons, in essence, of Abraham. Coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry him down to Egypt. Joseph said 
I'm sorry, Judah said to his brothers, and this is almost, well, it's sick and humorous. What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our flesh. And his brothers, listen, they conceded. He goes, guys, we can't kill him. He's our brother. He's our brother. He's our flesh and blood. Let's sell him. And they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's sell him. And so they sold his brother. And even tells us how much here. Notice it'll tell us that the miniatures passed by. The brothers pulled Joseph out of the, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Why is that key? Because that is the price of a slave. The price of a slave, 20 shekels of silver. In Jesus' day, what is the price of a slave? 30 shekels of silver. Zechariah would prophesy to the very point, exactly to the price. Well, you would think if you knew Scripture and you didn't want Jesus to fulfill Scripture, you would have given him 29 or 31 just to not fulfill that Zechariah says for 30 pieces of silver. And, I, and it's just fascinating, but, but understand that's what they're doing. These guys are going and they're just marketeers. They're a traveling car boot. And so what happens? They go, hey, we've got something else that you want to sell at your, at your auction. Go ahead and take the boy. How much will you give us? We'll give you the price of a slave. Perfect. That's 20 pieces of silver. Now we got 20 pieces of silver and we got rid of that dreamer. His brothers listened. The Midianites passed by. They took Joseph to Egypt. And this becomes the fundament. These guys could not have possibly imagined that 100 years ago, 100 years ago, God said something to great grandpa Abraham. You see, back in chapter 15 of Genesis, and flip there for a moment. Go ahead. You should be easy for you to find. Abraham, God is confirming a covenant with Abraham. He has slaughtered a three-year-old heifer, a, female, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, turtle doves and a young pigeon. And then in all of that, God stands and he says this in verse 13. He says to Abraham, or Abram at that point, Know certainly that your descendants will be a strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. They will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. That's a really strange thing. Now, notice what God said. This is what God said. Abram, I want to confirm this covenant about this land you're going to get here. But I'm going to confirm it with a riddle, if you will. You're going to have descendants. And of your descendants, they're going to wind up in a land they, that they don't belong in. But that land that they don't belong in, they're going to be slaves for 400 years. 400 years. In the fourth generation, after being slaves, they're going to come out rich. And all of those slave masters are just going to give them stuff. They're going to come out rich. Now, any of you ever see a bunch of slaves walk out rich before? They'd just be happy to not be slaves. But listen to this. Only in God's economy can he take a person that was in complete and absolute bondage and bring them to a place of being in absolute wealth. And you know what's beautiful? That's what he's done with every one of us. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to it. You were a slave to sin. That's what you were. That's what you were. And you would have been happy just not to be a slave to your sin anymore. But God says, I'm going to do so much more than that. I'm going to give you peace and love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And you were going to come out so wealthy. People go, wait a minute, weren't you just in bondage yesterday? Weren't you just beating me up for my money yesterday? What happened to you? I was in bondage, but God delivered me and actually delivered me out of that into him. Now, he says in the fourth generation. What's interesting is it's the fourth generation from Abraham that will go into this land, and it will be the fourth generation from that that will actually go out. God knows what he's doing. Four generations from Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph is sold and brought to where? To Egypt. Why is he brought to Egypt? Because ultimately God knew all of this and this was his plan. Joseph will wind up in Egypt to be raised up after a period of of great trials. He's second in command and he will be used. Listen, listen, listen. He will be raised up to first bring salvation to the Gentiles because it will be the Egyptians first. And then... In the act of forgiveness, when Joseph is fully realized as their brother in his forgiveness, he will be reconciled to the Jewish people 
and you'll be their savior too. And that's the way it works in the story of Joseph, and that's the way it works in real life with Jesus, just like that. Now, with all of that in mind, he had to get down to Egypt somehow. This would not have been the plan I would have asked for. How about you? I mean, a little trip down the Nile, go see the pyramids, something like that. That would be really cool. Something on a cruise, I'm good with that. Betrayed by your brothers, they wanted to kill you. Hey, look on the bright side, they didn't kill you, they sold you as a slave. It's still not that bright of a side. Just the same. Verse 29, let's wrap this to close it. It says, Reuben returned to the pit. Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes. And he said to his brothers, he returned to his brothers and said, the lad's no more. Where shall I go? Where's Joe? They took Joe's tunic, killed a coat, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. So now the, this robe is covered in blood. They set the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their, to their father and said, uh, we found this. Do you know whether this is your son's? Notice not our brother's. Your son's tunic or not? You know, there are, I mean, all those guys out there wearing these really, really bright, multicolored coats. This kind of looks a little bit like your son Joe's. He recognized it and said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. He's dead. That's what dad said. Now notice in verse 34, Jacob tore his clothes. Not Israel. Did you see that? Hey, if there's one thing that'll bring you back to the old man, something like this would. To be honest, it's these horrible trials in life where we are most susceptible to being who we used to be. Does that make any sense? And what's sad is it's those moments when we need to be Israel more than ever. But it's the moments when we'd be so quick to become Jacob. And it's so sad. You watch a family and they lose a child. I mean, could there be anything more painful than watching one of their own children die? And at that moment, that wife desperately needs an Israel, not a Jacob. He desperately needs an Israel and his wife, not a Jacob. But they become Jacobs almost always. And it doesn't even have to be a loss of a child. It could be a speeding ticket. Your car got clamped. You got nailed with, you know, whatever bill that you're like, I didn't expect that. For some, your cell phone stopped working. And all of a sudden, Jacob shows up. Can I come over and be a jerk in you for a while? And you're like, you ever have those moments where you're so spiteful? You're like, yeah, good. Go ahead. Let me just be a jerk. I feel like being a jerk. Come on, Jacob. Let's do it. Let's Jacob it up. You're laughing because you know, right? Notice it's the married people who are laughing the loudest. They're like, hey, hey, hey. I mean, I just mean, yeah, it's probably me. Uh. Notice my wife wasn't, I'm just kidding. Um, listen, friends, listen. He's there. He's there if you want him. He's there. If you really want to pick up that old nasty self and be that old nasty self, you can be that if you want to. But didn't you want that guy dead? Isn't that why you came to Jesus in the first place? You know what? He's different for a lot of us. He looks different. Some he's just really sarcastic. That's like the first signs of a Jacob for some people. I mean, the mouth that used to actually say things that encourage and bless now gets really kind of quick to cut someone down. And you're like, wow, that doesn't sound like me. Some it's isolative. You know, I just don't want anything to do with anyone. I'm just going to isolate them. I just, don't, just leave me alone. I'm going to go hide in my little corner. And that's what your Jacob looks like. So much the other. It'll just get in your face and say, what's up? And do it in a way that has no love. Is that your Jacob? Some all of a sudden, the scent of a bar smells really good. Some, it's like all of a sudden, you're walking a little slower when you walk by one of those phone booths plastered with horrible pictures. What is it for you? Because to be honest, if you're going to have real accountability in this life, real blockers, you should let them know what the first telltale signs of a Jacob are for you so that they can nail you before you become a full-fledged Jacob. Does that make any sense? And at those moments when something like this hits, 
it's a really good idea at a moment like that to jump in with love to someone that you know, ooh, this is going to be a good opportunity for someone to be a bad person. When you start saying, I deserve to be a jerk today, you know you're in trouble. We deserve to go to hell, but God doesn't want that, and he wants the world to see someone different. And it's about time the world saw us be stable. So can I just take this away from you right now? Can I remove your Jacob right? And say, God slaughtered that lamb for a reason. Jacobs make terrible married people. They make terrible friends. They make terrible witnesses. They make great dead people. Tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on his waist, and he mourned his son for many days. And who would blame him? The question is, can Israel mourn or can only Jacob mourn? And Israel could mourn, couldn't he? But Israel could mourn with hope. Jacob here never once seeks the Lord and says, Lord, what's really going on here? All he says is he assumes the worst. Well, let's face it, there's his son's coat. It's dipped in blood. Well, assumedly, that's his own blood, right? Verse 35, and so all of his sons and daughters arose to comfort him. Isn't that a bit ironic? The ones who sold all of his sons, that means the ones who sold Joseph to slavery, now come over and go, Dad, don't feel so bad. It'll be okay. You'll get past this. Maybe he's not really dead. With that knowing look as they look at each other. He's not really dead, Dad. Maybe that's the blood of something else. You want to see your dad like this? I wouldn't. He refused to be comforted. He said, I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. His father wept for him. These guys had just made his dad cry and cry out loud. And it ends with this. The Midianites, the Midianites, I thought they were Ishmaelites. God calls them the same thing. Had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph has now become a servant of one of Pharaoh's bodyguards. It's a strange place to wind up. By the way, that says a lot. Because that guy had some money to spend. And understand, a slave auction, you stood up on a block a little bit bigger than the top of this pulpit, and there were a, li- there were a list of guys. Usually, the, the, according to history, they were somewhere between 50 and 100 people. And you kind of scoped them all out and picked out which one you wanted as a slave. This guy, chances are, is going to be your highest bidder. This guy's got the biggest payroll, which leads me to believe Joseph was probably a good-looking, strong young guy. Which, of course, not only is Potiphar going to find so, but also is his wife. Now listen, beloved. As we seg into the life of Joseph, we're going to seg out of, for the most part, the life of Jacob, Israel. But we got a little hint here of something we all need to be really aware of. And that is that the Jacob that God slaughtered is still available for us to pick up and hurt other people and ourselves with. It should never be so. That's why God tells us to reckon that old man dead. Dead to sin. He's done with. You were buried in baptism. That old guy was buried. And you were raised in the newness of life. There's a new person. There's an Israel in you that God wants to show the world. And that Israel is going to be clothed with Christ, covered in love. And the world's going to look and have a problem with it. Get over it. It's part of the game. The good news is, if they have a problem with you, chances are you're winning. They love you when you're losing. And you're the one that's like, oh, I love that team. We beat them to pieces. God has intended victory for every one of us. Beloved, for this young man who could have at any moment pulled a card and said, well, fine, I'm just going to go AWOL and do crazy stuff. He doesn't do anything of the sort. And listen, don't use your circumstances or what somebody else did as an excuse for you to be rotten and nasty. It doesn't play in the kingdom or economy of God as much as you'd like it to. And maybe you have. Hey, look at I don't want to disqualify horrible things that have happened to you. And we won't compare and talk about who had a worse life, whether you had a great one or not. The good news is, is that God intends for us all to take 
to lay that at the cross. And maybe you don't feel like you could possibly forgive someone. I'm here to let you know that the one who forgave all sins of all mankind, including the one who pounded the nail into his wrist, and the one who spat in his face, and the one who said, prophesy, who killed you now, or who, who, uh, who hit you now. For all of those individuals, and forgave that individual, that person lives inside of you. And, and I just want to say today, God can set you free of the bondage of unforgiveness. And, that, and I'm, what I'm asking you to do is something simple with me. Say, look at God, I don't, I don't want to forgive that person. That person's been rotten to me, he's been whatever. But you know what? You want to forgive him through me. And so God, I just have to, I'm surrendering to you. Will you please forgive through me the, the one I can't possibly forgive in and of myself? And you can walk out of here free today. Free today. No longer in the bondage of that horror. Why relive that moment for the rest of your life? And God would want to set you free from it. And that may be a practice you will do for a period of time, but I can let you know God will in time as well. He may just deliver you outright right now, and it may be something he may just, every time you seek him, he'll make it a little easier. But beloved, Joseph is going to be a hero to us, and God wants us, every one of us, to be such a Joseph. And I'm so thankful for this example. So maybe you were hated by your family. Well, if, if so, then good, this guy knows. But I tell you what, so does Jesus. His brothers, his mom came to get him saying he was insane, according to Mark. He knows what it's like. But beloved, those same people that actually went to deliver Jesus from Jesus also wound up trusting in Jesus and writing books of the Bible after he rose from the grave. And the power of that resurrected Jesus is in you. And maybe you're not, maybe you haven't accepted Christ. Maybe you've got all kinds of reasons because someone else has been a horrible, rotten jerk. Hey, let's be honest. God saves jerks. Praise God or none of us would be saved. But are you really using somebody else's excuse to say no to a God who loves you? Because that's the choice you need to make today. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for Joseph and for the story you lay before us of a person who clearly could have been um, everything we would have been. And, and Lord, I, I just pray that for those of us whose circumstances really seem to be infinitely rougher than the people we may see around us. Lord, we recognize that there are people out and they just seem like they just smile and great things fall out of the sky for them. And I recognize, Lord, that often in my own life it seems like that. But Lord, I also recognize in all of this, Lord, that, that there, there are times when trials really beset and Lord, I, I don't ever want to use those trials as an excuse, Lord, to run back to the person I used to be that I so desperately wanted to be delivered from. And Lord, right now, for all of us in this room, I just pray, God, that you would truly minister to our souls, God. I pray for every person in this room, if there be unforgiveness, if somehow we're embracing, Lord, some person that was before in our life, who knows what they've become since then, Lord, but all we can think about is what they were like then. And we can't even embrace, God, that, that you have the power to change them. God, I pray that you would deliver that. I pray for marriages, Lord, that, that, that they, they can only see somebody that was back when and, and not who they are now. pray you would, Lord, cleanse, Lord, all that past. Bring forgiveness, Lord. I pray, Lord, for... Lord, for those people right now that all they can see is who they were. Show them how you're changing them. All they could see is some horrific group of events, Lord, and that defines who they are today instead of the cross. And Lord, the world will, will do everything to keep us in that mindset. But Jesus, you've told us different. We are new creations in you. And I pray, God, that you utterly transform us and don't allow, that you would not allow us, Lord, to be identified any longer by the things we came from more than the, the person you're making us to be. Lord, I, I don't want to disqualify those things. Clearly, there have been rough things that people have experienced, no doubt, even horrific things. But Lord, somehow you've carried us through them and we're here. Thank you, Lord, that those things are in our past, not in our present. Lord, for those who's even in right now, there are things that are tough going on in their life. God, I just pray that you would bring deliverance. You'd bring change. And even here now in this room, Lord, I just pray right now as I reconfess my love to you. Lord, if there be anyone who has yet to say yes to you and they feel like they have a valid excuse, will you show them the nonsense of that? 
and give them every reason to say yes right now. And as I pray this prayer, I just pray, saints, beloved, that you would listen. And again, if you agree, you would just say amen. Not because we have to keep doing this, not because this is some kind of exercise, but to be honest, because I just want to do this because I, want, I always want to be fresh in my relationship with the Lord. So here it is, Lord Jesus, again, I just confess to you that, that, I, that I am much more Jacob than Israel and that I am defective. I was born defective. I am naturally a sinner. But you paid for all my sins on the cross. You died there to pay for them and then rose again to give us new life. So thank you for the new life you offer. Thank you that your deliverance isn't just removal from hell, but also, Lord, deliverance from the kingdom of darkness into your arms, into you, Father, into your Son, who you love. Thank you that Jesus can be my forgiver and is my forgiver like Job. Thank you that he's my deliverer like Mo. And thank you that he's my conqueror just like Joshua. So, Lord, as, as you are my forgiver, forgive my sins. As you are my deliverer, deliver me from their penalty. And as you are my conqueror, I just pray right now you would be the Lord of me. Have rights to all of me, I pray. In Jesus' name.